Well, good morning, church family. Welcome to church this morning, and a special welcome to everyone who's watching from home. Turn in your Bibles to that passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I'll give you a moment to turn there. You know, 17 years as your pastor, and one of the things that I most cherish about our church family is the time that we devote to reading God's Word when we are gathered together. You know, we actually read entire chapters of Scripture, and it just is refreshing and renewing. And then we take the time to go through it and see what the Lord God is saying to us today from His Word. So, what a treat. I don't know about you guys, but I look forward to this 45 minutes or so all week long. Let's bow our hearts in prayer as we turn to God's Word. Father, we pray that during this time you would send your Holy Spirit to illumine truth, to lead us into all truth, truth that is a person, Jesus Christ. Rightly order our affections, our thoughts, and our lives. We pray this in his name and to the glory of your coming kingdom. Amen. Amen. So 2 Corinthians chapter 9 Uh, Let's remember the context. Look at verse 1. Paul says, Now it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. What's Paul talking about here? Well, if you remember last week, Paul has been spending his entire Christian ministry traveling from one city to the next. He has given his entire life to a mission of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Paul was commissioned by the church leaders in Jerusalem to do just that. And so as he travels, he travels intentionally to urban centers. He preaches the good news of Jesus Christ. People in those cities are saved and born again by responding to that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in each of those cities, churches are formed and planted, if you will. What happens is that the Holy Spirit gifts these new converts, these newly born-again Christians in these cities, and gifts them in various and diverse ways so that they can lead in the church in that city. That's how churches are formed, right? Paul does that throughout the known world. But in each of those cases, in each of those churches that Paul plants, before he leaves the one to move on to the next, he instructs every one of those churches to take up a collection. He instructs them all that they would give generously to a collection for the poor back in Jerusalem. That's the immediate context for our chapter 8 last week and our chapter 9 this week. This collection that Paul has instructed this church in Corinth to gather. There are a few things that we want to notice and apply from this chapter to our life today as a church in Burlington. The first one, I, I think that you might feel this one too. As I go about my day-to-day life these days, I find that I am bombarded by asks and appeals for money. Do you notice that? And as a person who's seeking to be generous, and remember that generosity is about more than our money, but it's never about less than what we do with our money. So as a person who's intentional about wanting to be generous, I get all of these asks and requests all the time, and I have to ask the question, well, to what do I give? 
On any given week, people come by my house and ring my doorbell at the most inconvenient times, right? Looking to raise money for their cause. I give them the same answer every time, that it's a policy for me not to give at the door. But that as a Christian man, I have structured giving and I research the things that I give to and I do so intentionally. And they usually think that I'm just full of baloney and don't want to give the money and leave. But anyway, that's what happens. But these days, I also find when I go to the grocery store or the hardware store, as I'm about to check out, they ask me if I want to give a dollar to fill in the blank. And I don't do it. And sometimes I feel like, you know, a little guilty for not doing it. I think, man, I just sort of feel like I'm a shyster or something, or this person behind the register is thinking less of me for not giving, and I struggle with that. But I don't give to those because, you know, giving a dollar is, is not the point of Christian generosity. That's just tokenism to try to ease your guilt in the moment. Well, there are always kids' teams and fundraisers and different things that come to me through media, and the list goes on and on. I'm sure your life is similar. And so then you come to church on Sunday morning and you think, man, the last thing that I want to hear about this morning is someone asking for money. You've been bombarded all week long. So why are we talking about money and giving? Well, the first reason is because Jesus talked a lot about money. Did you know that? You know, the two things that Jesus talked most about were money and hell. What a preacher. You know, if you think that we've been slogging through some difficult topics through 2 Corinthians over the last couple of weeks, Jesus devoted the majority of his time to talking about money and hell. And if there's something that's emerged for us over 2 Corinthians as we move through it, this letter is fundamentally about the Lordship of Christ. Giving Jesus the right to tell us what to do with our lives, with our affections, with our bodies, with our money, with our time, because he is Lord. One of the most condemning things that Jesus says in the Gospels is when he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? And so we, we talk about money because Jesus did. We also talk about money and giving these last two Sundays, last Sunday and this, because it just happens to be the next chapter in 2 Corinthians. We don't cherry-pick, we just preach through the Bible. So you may be sitting here this morning and you think, look, R.D., I'm already giving in a focused way to one or two things that are really, you know, heavy on my heart. Things that really matter to me, I give money to those things generously. And you think, well, I, I can't give any more to other things. Well, Paul here, and in his other letters, sets out three categories for Christian giving. So if you're, if you're looking at your life and at your pattern of giving right now, and you're saying, I want to be generous, I want to be a Christian, I don't know what to give to, I'm being bombarded by all of these things, what things should a Christian man or woman give to? Well, there are three areas that Christian men and women ought to simultaneously give to, according to St. Paul. The first one is to support your Christian leadership in your local church. 
I'm not going to take time this morning to go into them, but if you're taking notes, jot down Galatians 6, 6. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. And 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11. Paul's saying one of the one of the three things that Christian men and women ought to simultaneously give to is the support of their Christian leadership. Christian leaders are under an obligation to teach the Bible and to do so thoroughly. And congregations are reciprocally obligated to support them financially and to do so adequately. The second thing that Christians ought to give their money to is to the support of missionary endeavors. Again, you know, we could preach a sermon on each and every one of these. I just want to list off the three before we dive into the text this morning. The second one is to support missionary leaders. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 5. Paul's talking about partnership in the gospel. And when he's talking about partnership, the word that he uses in Greek is the word for a, uh, a partnership of commerce and trade. It's very specifically partnering with missionaries and giving them money. So support Christian leadership support missionary endeavors. And then the third one is what we have here this morning. And that's care for the needy. What follows in this entire chapter is specific to this third category of giving to the care for the needy, but it applies equally to all three of these categories. Here's the point before we jump in. You're a Christian man or woman and you are feeling spread thin in your generous giving. Hit pause, take a step back, reevaluate, and focus on these three areas. Let's jump into the text. Our first chunk this morning is verses 1 to 5. Now, some of us, the, the, the issue at hand will be, how do we focus? We give to so many things in so many different ways. How do we focus our giving? But for others of us, especially those who are new to the Christian faith, the issue is that you need to start giving, period. And the question in this case is, how do I, as a Christian man or woman, start giving generously? Perhaps when Glenda was reading verses 1 to 5, you noticed a repeated word. Did you hear it? Look at it in front of you. You'll see it. The word is ready. This word ready highlights the attitude of the generous giver as a Christian. Look at verse 2, the second half of verse 2. He says, and your zeal, he says, uh, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Look at verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Paul's saying that we as Christian men and women ought to be ought to have gifts that are ready. See, in those two verses, Paul's talking about the readiness of the gift. But he's also talking in verses 2, 3, and 4 about the readiness of the giver. So when we ask the question, how does a Christian man or woman give, the first thing that you ought to pull out of this is that the gift 
should be ready. This means that Christian men and women should be intentional, planned, and strategic in their giving. You know, when you do up a household budget every year, one of the line items should be generous giving. Now, this is a a question that's hotly debated in church. What does it mean to give generously? Well, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament antecedent was the tithe. And according to the tithe, God's people would give the first 10% of their wealth, you know, whether it was crops or income or whatever, to the work of the Lord. That was the tithe, the first 10%. And then by giving that 10% first, the rest of what they had was proleptically blessed. So the blessing of that first 10% fell upon all the rest of the 90%, and things went further and it was multiplied. We can assume that when Paul writes this chapter 9 to the Corinthians, that they already presumed an understanding and an agreement upon tithing. And so what that means is, when you are making sure that your gift is ready, when you are being strategic and intentional and planning how you're going to give to the work of the Lord, you're not even generous until after the first 10%. The tithe was presumed and required. And generosity for the Christian man or woman begins after that. So make sure that the gift is ready. The second thing that he's saying in these five verses is that the giver ought to be ready. What does the readiness of a giver looks like, look like? Well, look at verse 5. He's saying that a ready giver is someone who doesn't see giving to the work of the Lord as an exaction. Okay? Paul's saying, when you think about being generous and sacrificial in your giving as a Christian, to have a ready heart means that you do not see your giving to the work of the Lord the same way that you see your taxes. It's not a, a, a duty or an obligation or a chore or a drudgery, it's not an exaction but it's a joy. Christian man or woman, you must make sure that your gift is ready, but that your heart is in a state of readiness as well. See, you can't think of generosity and giving like an exaction. That's what Paul is saying. It's not something that's owed out of obligation. What does this mean for us at St. George's? Well, it means that, in one sense, we don't pass the plate or present opportunities for giving because we need the money to make budget. That's not why we do it. We present you with opportunities to give generously and sacrificially to the work of the Lord not so that we could meet budget and pay for things, but so that you would have the benefit and the blessing of giving. Look, the Lord is going to provide. The question is, are you going to participate in a way that's sacrificial and generous and so receive the benefits of having given to the work of the Lord? Well, what benefits and how? 
We're going to see that in the coming verses. But before we move on to these other verses, I just want to make sure that you get this point in verses 1 to 5. That Christian generosity begins with the gift being ready and the giver's heart being ready as well. Let's look at verses 6 to 9. In verses 6 to 9, Paul uses the metaphor of sowing and reaping. And this is going to show us one of the benefits of Christian giving. Why it is that God gives you the opportunity to give financially for your benefit. That's what we're looking at. So verse 6, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This thought model that Paul is setting forward for us is a farmer's proverb. You sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly, right? And I think he's presuming that the Corinthians were tight-fisted. He's giving them this warning. Paul uses this agrarian truism to highlight the benefit of Christian giving. It's in giving, generously and sacrificially, that you will see the Lord's provision. That's the first benefit. Look, every farmer knows that with favorable weather, they can expect from each wheat seed that is sown a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 seeds. That's the picture that the farmers would have known back in Corinth in this day. And I don't know if we have farmers here this morning. But if you take one seed of wheat and you sow it into the ground, you don't just get one seed in return. For every seed that you sow into the ground, you get 30, 60, 100 fold, depending on the soil and the weather. It multiplies. The farmer doesn't multiply the harvest. He simply sows. It's God that provides the multiplication. And so Paul is drawing this point out for us that when we give, we are like farmers who are not hoarding and holding on to, but we are sowing it. And then God is the one who multiplies it. It's the God of the harvest who gives to the sower enough harvest first to supply seed for the next season. Second, to provide that farmer with his daily bread and his needs. And third, it's through sowing and reaping generously that the farmer receives a surplus beyond it all. So the benefit of giving that Paul's pointing out here is first, that it reorients and corrects our thinking. Every time that we give generously, Think about it in terms of sowing. Remind yourself, as you put the money in the plate or as you give electronically, that it's God who provides for you and that everything that you have is from him. Another benefit of Christian giving is that it's through giving that God gives us a big, generous, open heart. So many forces and factors in our life conspire to make our hearts small. 
and stingy with our money and with all other things. But it's through actively engaging in sacrificial, generous giving to the work of the Lord that God grants us big, wide open, gracious hearts. It's one of the ways that God works that miracle. Look at verses 7 to 9. Paul says, Each and every one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. As you give to the work of the Lord, check your heart. What are your motives for giving? Sometimes we give out of guilt. Right? We think, if I give money to the work of the Lord, this will somehow alleviate the guilt that I'm feeling. Other times, I think maybe one of our motives is to give out of pride. You know, the plate is passing by and you want people to see you put something on it or you want to be known in the Christian community as someone who gives generously. Paul's saying neither of those are going to result in the benefit of giving. The benefit of giving is seen when you give from a cheerful heart. Paul is teaching this point that God's grace towards us produces graciousness within us. It's when we give from a cheerful heart that we put God's grace on display. And so the invitation from this cheerful giving is to give without bound. To look for opportunities to give cheerfully and liberally and freely. To not ask the question, how much do I have to give? But to ask the question, how much do I get to give? Because it's all from God. He's blessed me with it. I give back to him cheerfully. Not out of compulsion, Paul says, but ready and not reluctant. For God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 7. Do you know why God loves a cheerful giver? Have you ever wondered that one? Look at verse 15. God loves a cheerful giver because he's a cheerful giver. You and I are never more like God. We're never more like Jesus than when we give sacrificially, generously, and cheerfully. Verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Verse 7, for God loves a cheerful giver. Look at verses 10 to 15. Verses 10 to 11 sets out a logical flow. And remember here, what we're building is a picture of the benefits of Christian giving. Okay? Verse 10. He, God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Here's the logical flow of what Paul's reinforcing for them in terms of talking about the benefits of giving. He says, verse 10, that God provides for your needs. 
He provides seed to the sower for bread for food. Right? That's what he's saying. The second thing that he's saying is God will provide for your future. He will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. Right? God not only supplies bread, he supplies seed for further sowing. This is painting the picture of God's provision. And thirdly, God provides an increase in your harvest for righteousness. That's a direct quote. Well, what does this increase in a harvest of righteousness mean? Let me tell you first what it doesn't mean. There has been a dominant heresy that has crept into the church in the West over the last few decades in particular. It's something that's referred to as the prosperity gospel. And what that would tell you is, as you give to the work of the Lord, the more you give, the more likely you are to end up wearing a Rolex watch. I mean, the ugliness of it is, it comes along to people who have bad things befall them, and it says, well, the opposite is also true. If you are finding yourself in struggle or hardship, it's probably because you didn't give enough or believe enough. That's a heresy. And that's not what Paul is talking about. So what is the harvest of righteousness that will increase to you as you give? Well, one of the things that is a harvest of righteousness that you will gain by giving is this promise that giving generously and sacrificially to the work of the Lord is the best way to expose and dethrone the idolatry of money. When you give generously and sacrificially to the work of the Lord, that is the mechanism that God has put in place so that you would increase your harvest of righteousness, harvest of righteousness, by exposing and dethroning an idol in your life, the idol of money. You only do that by giving sacrificially to the work of the Lord. So what is an idol? Well, I think we would all agree that money can take an idolatrous place in our lives. An idol is anything that takes the place in your life that belongs only to God. The moment that money becomes your idol or your God, you are headed into the weeds and headed for disaster. Paul is saying that as you give sacrificially and generously to the work of the Lord, one of the things that will increase towards righteousness for you is it will expose the fact that money has taken an unhealthy place in your values. You know, it's fascinating. Um, even atheists and agnostics have idols. You ever thought about this? Atheists and agnostics still have gods in one sense. Because a god is anything that sits at the top of the hierarchy of your life. Look, every single one of us live our lives according to a hierarchy. We have things that we value over others. It's what guides our decision-making processes. And whatever sits at the top of that hierarchy is your god. Now, if you are 
an atheist or an agnostic, that God could take on the form of any form of idolatry. If you're a Christian, that place at the top of the hierarchy that determines how you value everything else is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it's by giving sacrificially and generously that you will see if money has taken that place in your life. But it requires that each and every one of us gives in a very specific way. If you want to reap a harvest of righteousness in your life through giving, you have to give till it hurts. You have to give a lot. Now this means that each and every one of us has to give proportionately. We saw that last week. Let me say it a different way. You will never gain this benefit from giving unless you are giving sacrificially till it hurts or till it pinches. Now this is where this principle of proportionality comes in because for some of us here this morning, you can hit that point, that idol-exposing, idol-displacing point by giving $5 because resources for you are scarce. But for some of us, you will not hit that idol-exposing, idol-displacing point of giving until you give $10,000 or $100,000. That's why Paul talks about the proportionality of giving, because it's not about meeting budget or meeting the need. It's about your giving benefiting you by exposing the idolatrous place that, get, that money has taken in your heart. So the giving has to be proportionate. That's why Jesus told the story of the widow's might. Jesus was standing and watching all the rich people walk by and put enormous amounts of money in the coffer of the temple. And then he saw this widow who had nothing come and put a penny in. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, she has given more than anyone else because they gave out of their abundance. She gave everything that she had. Do you see the principle? Not the same amount, but the same level of sacrificial generosity. That's what will expose the idol. Man, I was so convicted when I was doing prep for this this week because I was thinking back to many years ago when my late wife and I were forging our way through life. And in those early days when I was doing my master's degree and preparing for ministry and you know, we didn't have enough money to stop at Williams and get a coffee. But somehow it was easier to give sacrificially back then. It's harder for me to give sacrificially now that we have more resources. Do you know what I mean? Proportionally, it would be the same thing, but it's very difficult to do. I can only think of a handful of times over the last few years that I have personally given to that extent of sacrificial generosity, given to the point where it hurt, where it pinched, given to the work of the Lord in such a way that I had to not do something else. That's the kind of giving that will result in a harvest of righteousness 
by exposing the idolatrous place that money has taken in your life. Well, that's the first thing that will increase to righteousness in your life through giving. Uh, The other ones are more brief. Let's move through them quickly. Another harvest of sowing cheerfully, another benefit of giving, another harvest of righteousness is in verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, when you give generously and sacrificially to this point where it hurts, proportionately it's going to be different amounts for everyone. It's going to be the same level of sacrifice. When you do that, you're going to be enriched for the purpose of further generosity. This is another benefit of giving. Often when we give sacrificially and generously, God entrusts us with more so that we can be even more generous with those resources as well. The greater the giving, the greater the enrichment. The greater the enrichment, the greater the resources that we have to give. That's another harvest of righteousness. Look at verse 13. This is another one. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them, for all others. See, giving benefits benefits you with a harvest of righteousness because it is also a proof or an acknowledgement of the gospel. That's what Paul means here in verse 13 when he talks about their approval of this service. He's saying that when you give generously and sacrificially as a Christian person, you are actually glorifying God. Paul says that through submitting to this kind of giving, you are with your actions, with your resources, with your treasures, with your values, you are confessing the gospel. That's a harvest of righteousness that comes through sacrificial giving. How does that work? Well, I want to I finish by picking up something we said earlier. Here's how it works. With your giving, you will affirm and proclaim the gospel. Because verse 7, God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 15, he loves a cheerful giver because he is a cheerful giver himself. This means that Christian generosity is like everything else in the Christian life. It's lived in light of the cross. It means that everything that we do in our Christian life is secondary and in response to what God has done for us in Jesus on the cross. And so even our generosity, Paul frames our generosity in response to God's generous gift to us. It means that if you want to be more generous, you don't work on being more generous, you go back to the cross. It means if you find yourself not generous, the problem is not that you're not generous. 
That's the indicator. The problem is that you've forgotten how costly is your salvation. Christians give from a cheerful heart because we know that God is a cheerful giver to us. It means that we as Christians ought to give in a way that wouldn't make sense apart from the gospel. Let me put it in practical terms. It means that if you have a non-Christian financial advisor, and at the end of the year, he looks at your statements, and he sees how much money you give to the work of the Lord, and he's not a Christian, he will ask you for an explanation. And that's your opportunity to tell him, I give freely and generously and sacrificially to the work of the Lord because God in Jesus has given me eternal life. Christian generosity. It's like everything else in the Christian life. It's lived in light of the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that instructs the big things in our life, the guiding principles, but also challenges us in the specifics and in the details. Lord, I pray that you would grant us such an enormous, robust vision of the truth of your gift to us of eternal life in Jesus that our response would be generous, sacrificial giving as well. Lord, we pray that you would make it so, that we would reap all of these rewards of righteousness, and so that we would grow ever more into the Lordship of Jesus. We pray this to the glory of your name. Amen.